Good morning. Get my stuff there for you. Might as well turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. All right. If you're not familiar with tradition, you're supposed to respond with, He is risen indeed. Okay. I mean, He is risen. <laughs> a little better. Not impressive, but better. So, well, there are some Easter bonnets out there, hats. Even some of the boys got involved. So are we handing out a prize, Lori, for, for the best? Most interesting, okay. A, a what? Oh, yeah, <clears throat> right. All right, well, um, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Uh, my name is Ben. I serve here as the senior pastor. And uh, I'm excited to celebrate with you Christ's victory over sin and death, of course, by way of his resurrection uh, this is the day. Uh, before we get into the word this morning, uh, I have a note from Devin Kirk that she wanted me to share with you. Um, she asked me if I could, and I said, well, sure. Did you get my text? Okay, all right. It says, Dear Church family, I am in awe of the way you all became the hands and feet of Jesus for me and my family. The outpouring of love you have shown me is unmatched by any church body I've ever been a part of, and for that I am and will be forever grateful. On another note, to say I am profoundly blessed to be on the receiving end of the accolades of Sean's good works, knowing that you know the truth of his darkest secret sin without receiving or even hearing murmurs of gossip, I cannot even put into words how this has spurred me on to tell the story of God's amazing grace and provision in my life. Let this continue to be the lesson to us all. What Satan has meant for evil, God has meant for Let it be known that Calvary Chapel Centralia is a mature body of believers who deal swiftly, biblically with sin. We must confess and repent, turning away from sin. He is holy, so we must be holy. But oh, the love and forgiveness that is lavished on us we show so freely to one another, and you all do it so well. It was finished at the cross, so walk freely in his righteousness. We are not slave, slaves to sin, all to the glory of God. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, 1 John 4.21. And she says, nailed it, Calvary Chapel. Love your sister, Devin Kirk. So, all right, well, today... Um, Somebody had come to me and said, you know, just another year, the same sermon. Uh, well, t- this morning's not going to be the same sermon. Uh, I typically don't do the same sermon year after year. Um, I try to get everybody thinking uh, at the resurrection from a different angle. So this morning, uh, rather than focus exclusively on the resurrection itself, I wanted to explore some of the benefits that Jesus secured for us uh, by rising from the dead. I have two <clears throat> primary texts for you. The first is Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. And then the second is like it from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 through 20. So if you want to put your fingers on both of those, or you can just listen to me as I read them. Uh, I will read it from the Bible, I promise. Uh, New King James Version. So, well, I've wanted to... Uh, for a while now, share these particular passages with you, uh, not only because it's pertinent to the day itself, but because of how difficult, uh, really difficult things have been over the last few months 
You know, for myself, uh, and I'm sure for many of you, because of the, just the concentration of loss and all of the sorrow and the tragedy, um, I've, I've never hurt so badly before. I've never felt so fragile or vulnerable in my life. Uh, my sleep seems to have taken a vacation, and I've just felt crushed on the inside, always restraining tears. But in the midst of this, I've been very aware that my life and my hope is tethered to something absolutely unmovable. So that as my strength has failed, uh, he has held me fast according to what he has promised in his word. And so these passages have given me light and hope uh, as I've processed all of this tragedy. So if you would, by way of honoring God's word, would you please stand as I read it to you? If you're not able to stand, please remain seated and think nothing else of it, okay? Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, Paul the apostle says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And then Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 through 20, the author says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. <clears throat> this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Please pray with me. Well, Father, today is the day of days. We know from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, where we would be without the resurrection. There would be no hope. There would be no forgiveness. There would be no life beyond this one. We would just, we would die, and that would be all. So, Lord, we thank you that you called your son out of the grave and that by his resurrection, you have distributed every benefit of Calvary. Lord, we're grateful, and we just pray that <clears throat> the reality of the resurrection and all that you have granted to us, Lord, that it would, it would dawn upon us this morning and that we would have greater hope and, um, Lord, that we would trust you more. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to be seated. Well, as I mentioned, you know, all the redemptive facts, uh, and, and as it's stated in the passages, aside from, you know, God's predetermination were all possible by the resurrection. Uh, God had predetermined that all these things take place in history, but he determined to accomplish them by way of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Every benefit of, re of, of redemption is the product of the resurrection. For example, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, 
when Paul says to the Corinthians that if Christ did not rise, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. He's saying that the forgiveness of sins is dependent on the resurrection. No resurrection, no forgiveness. In Romans 4.25, Paul says that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Paul is saying that the justification of the believer depended on the resurrection of Jesus. So without the resurrection, no one could be justified in God's sight. In John 14, 9, Jesus said to his disciples, because I live, you will live also. Our our resurrection depends on Jesus' resurrection. Life beyond the grave is a fairy tale if Jesus did not rise from the dead. We would just die, we would be compost, uh, we would be worm food, Uh, Paul says the exact same thing in in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 18. He doesn't actually use the word compost uh, or worm food, but um, same idea. Uh, I could go on and on just to show that every redemptive benefit that we enjoy now and the ones that we have secured for us in the future, that without the resurrection, none of it is a reality. Our hope, our peace, our security, absolutely everything. So let's uh, look closer to Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. <clears throat> if you have small children with you and um, it's difficult for you to pay attention and, and hold your Bible and all that, I'll have it all on the screen for you. So again, Paul says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now, of course, this passage follows a very long list of things made possible by the resurrection of Christ. But what is mentioned here in these few verses, uh, I think ministers well under the circumstances. Every believer, he says, has been predestined for God's purposes. We'll be looking at that throughout the text, and I'll even end with a benediction referring to that. Here in verse 11 and 12, those purposes are these. The first one is to, you've been predestined to obtain an inheritance from him. And the second is you've been predestined to become the instruments who praise him and give him glory for eternity. It's been predestined, predetermined. I don't care which word you want to use. It all ends up the same in the wash. The inheritance to be obtained by us is eternity with God in the new earth, in the new earth, which means we'll not spend eternity in some floaty existence beyond the clouds as we see portrayed in Hollywood. I remember thinking as a child watching Warner Brothers cartoons and the old Warner Brothers cartoons are still the best, okay? The World War II ones, the ones about the gangsters in Chicago, just amazing. But it's no wonder children don't want to go to heaven. Uh, What could be more boring than sitting on a cloud and playing a harp as Hollywood has portrayed it? The scriptures teach that we will be transients in heaven until we return to the earth with Christ. And as soon as the final judgment is complete, he will make a new heaven and he'll make a new earth where we will dwell with him forever in our resurrected bodies. Amen? God did not create us for heaven. He created us to be in a body for eternity on, not this earth, thank God, but the new one, okay? 
nothing in the regeneration of the future renewal of the physical universe will be subject to sin, decay, or death. And in his presence, as Psalm 16 says, there will be pleasures forevermore and joy everlasting. So it's true. We go to heaven, but only for a time. Our eternal dwelling place is with God in the new earth. We've also been predestined to praise God and bring him glory for all eternity. I could only expect a redeemed sinner to understand that reality and to look forward to it. Yeah. The eternal state on the new earth will go beyond our wildest imagination in a place where we will worship him forever. So I say, come, Lord Jesus, bring us to that place where only righteousness dwells and the praise of our Savior is eternal. I, I don't care to remain here a whole lot longer. Okay? Have you seen what's going on out there? I'm ready to move on. And that, moving on, has been predestined for God's people. It's all been laid out for us to look forward to. It's by, it's by ours, by inheritance. And one day, he will deliver us from this broken mess that we have perpetuated, mind you. He will place us in our eternal. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's continue in the text. <clears throat> he says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So upon hearing the word of truth, which is just the simple gospel message, we believed, we were saved, and having believed, the Holy Spirit came and he resided in us, by which the text says, he sealed us, and then Paul later says in Ephesians 4.30 that he sealed us for the day of redemption. We've been sealed for that day, not hopefully, not potentially, but actually. And it happened the very moment that we trusted in Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss the simplicity of, uh, of how we are saved. Paul says that we heard, we believed, we were saved, and we were sealed, right? He doesn't say that we heard and we responded to an altar call accompanied by dramatic music when everyone's eyes were closed. We said the sinner's prayer, and then we were saved. Or that we heard the gospel message, and we lived a flawless life. And then God decided on the day that we died if we did well enough to be saved. That's not what it says. There's none of that. There's no altar calls in Scripture. The sinner's prayer was invented in the 20th century. It seems a little late in the history of, of the church. Paul taught that whoever hears with faith, trusting in the atoning death of Christ, his justifying resurrection is saved that very moment. People don't need to respond to an altar call. They don't need to say the sinner's prayer to be saved. That would just add something to, the salva to salvation that's not in the scriptures. Hearing and believing is all that the scriptures teach. And that very moment when faith is directed toward Christ, the Holy Spirit invades the soul of the person. They become what scripture says, they're regenerate, they're reborn. They become spiritually alive to God and they enter into fellowship with him. Paul says that this occurred not <clears throat> by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So we are saved by the way of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration and renewal. But Paul isn't only talking about the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration in Ephesians 1.13. He's addressing the Spirit's work of sealing the believer for the day of redemption. 
You see, to seal something in this sense meant to place a mark upon it to authenticate its status. Now, seals were used for many other things, but in this particular context, it marks a person as belonging to God. The Holy Spirit in us is the seal. His, his presence authenticates our identity and to, whom to, and to whom we belong. And the seal is important for the day of redemption when God calls his people out of the grave. Only those sealed by the Holy Spirit are resurrected on that day. Only those people. Everyone else remains in the grave until the final judgment. But for us, the Holy Spirit is more than the seal upon our lives. Paul continues, he says, who, that's he, <clears throat> is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Who's the, or what is the purchased possession? We be purchased, not with silver and gold or any other corruptible thing, but with the precious blood of Christ, right? So the Holy Spirit's presence, <clears throat> he says, is the guarantee of our inheritance. The word guarantee refers to a down payment. It's very similar to what we think of as earnest money, earnest money. It's a down payment made in advance to secure property for a buyer. In this case, the property is us, and the purchaser is Christ, and the currency is blood. We're blood-bought. In his Greek lexicon, uh, Spiros Zodiades, and he's Greek, <laughs> seems qualified for giving us a Greek lexicon. He says that this word is used in the New Testament only in a figurative sense and spoken of the Holy Spirit which God has given to believers in this present life to assure them of their future and eternal inheritance. That's sweet. The one who made the purchase will return for his property, which he sealed with his spirit. Nothing bought with his blood will be lost. And all that the Father has given him by way of redemption, is secured by the Spirit's seal. Jesus said, <clears throat> all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but to raise it up on the last day. John, 3, or John 6, 37 and 39. Let me read the last part. And this is the will of him who sent me. That's, this is the will of God the Father that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you have come to Christ, you've been given to him, and he will raise you up on the last day. So the Holy Spirit both seals us to authenticate what we are and who we belong to, and he is the deposit that ensures that Christ will redeem us for the inheritance that he has secured us for. And then Paul concludes there, and for what he has done, we will praise and glorify him forever. And with me, you will all do it gladly. Amen. Let me move to Hebrews with you. <clears throat> the texts are very much related, but I love this one. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly, he can't just say it, in other words, or it wasn't enough for him to just say it. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. So God's determination. Now all of God's determination occurred in eternity. That's before he created the world. So from our perspective, all of his determination is predetermination. 
just as we saw it in Ephesians chapter one, but there Paul used the word predestined. In this passage, the author is saying that God from all eternity was determined to demonstrate to the heirs of the promise that which is immutable. Immutable refers to something that cannot change at all. It's unchanging and it's completely unchangeable. It's immutable. He says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The two immutable things are these. The first one is God's counsel. The second is God's oath. God's counsel is his predetermined purpose, that which he has always been determined to do. Well, when it comes to God's counsel uh, being something done in eternity, it's not always something that's revealed to us. Much of it is just It's just hidden, and it's his prerogative to do that. But regarding our inheritance in Christ, God has communicated it to us. It's all through the Gospels. We talked about it in Ephesians 1. But here he says that he wanted to make it abundantly clear to us and for us to have strong consolation that nothing can change this reality for us as his people. He wanted it to be abundantly clear and he wanted us to have strong consolation. So he gave us two immutable things. You think he's trying to make a point? I think so. Abundantly clear, giving a strong consolation. So along with God's predetermination, which is immutable, he gave his purposes to us in the form of an oath, and he swore, as the text previously says, you know, men swear by things greater than themselves. Well, God looked above himself and there was nothing. So he swore by himself, and he brought it to an oath for two reasons. It reveals to us what God has determined, and it binds the outcome of all of this to his eternal, unchanging nature. It's, It's tied to his character. Well, that's important because God's nature, because of his nature, it's impossible for him to lie. So his, his oath is unchangeable. It can never be altered. It can never be revoked. The oath is immutable like the God who gave it. Why did he do this? That we who fled for refuge in him might have strong consolation. We might have a firm comfort and confidence in what God has done and what he has promised. We might feel eternally, unshakably secure. I kind of like the sound of that, especially when everything around us crumbles and everything going on out there is completely out of our control. That we're eternally, unshakably secure. It gets better. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. That sounds mysterious. Actually, the word presence there is from that word in the Greek, we get esoteric, that which is hidden. Interesting. This hope we have is the immutable promise of God. And the author here says, it is to us an anchor of the soul, which is secure and steadfast. Do you think he could assure us of what is secure and steadfast anymore? The word for sure is the same as secure. I would say bomb-proof. Steadfast is the same as secure, firm, unalterable, fixed, does not fail. It is immovable and therefore completely reliable. So 
tethered to the believer's soul is an unmovable, unbreakable anchor. It's just as immutable as God's nature, as God's person. And this particular anchor is fastened within the veil uh, that is the Holy of Holies in heaven where God currently dwells. Yeah. So our souls are anchored to his presence. Anchored there. Well, how did the anchor of our souls get there where the forerunner has entered for us? Even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, this ancient priestly order. So after Jesus made a a complete atonement for our sins, died, rose again, and ascended to heaven, Scripture says he entered the Holy of Holies and he sat down at the right hand of his Father. But the text is telling us that he brought something with him. He brought an anchor, and the anchor is tethered to our souls. You know, Jesus literally carried the, you know, the horizontal beam of the cross to Calvary where he bore the sins of the world in judgment. But when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he carried with him, as it were, this anchor to which our souls are fastened. Listen carefully. So that as Jesus said, where I am, there you may be also. He goes there with the, with the anchor and he, he fixes it. He fastens it to his presence as the guarantee that we will go where he is. He takes us with him. That's his promise. And and last I checked, no promise of Jesus can fall to the ground. Amen? Nothing. The soul of the believer will eventually go to its anchor. As the author says, this hope is both secure and unbreakable, sure and steadfast, guaranteed by God's immutable purpose and his unchangeable oath. Just as God predestined, predetermined for the believer to give him praise and bring him glory forever, he is unchangeably determined to have us with him. Whoever the author of Hebrews is, but Paul and this guy is saying that we, we cannot be moved away from this hope because it's not secured by me or by you. It's secured by the sovereign of the universe. Secured in Christ because he died on Calvary's cross, rose in victory over death, and is now seated at the right hand of his Father. We have been predestined to obtain this inheritance. We have been saved and sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, who guarantees that Christ will recover what he has purchased. This has been further guaranteed to us by God's immutable purpose and his unalterable oath, so that our hope is securely anchored where our Savior resides. And so when he returns or calls us home, we will be in his presence. And as Paul concludes in Ephesians, and it will all be to the praise of his glorious grace. No matter what we endure or how weak we become, no matter the assault from the enemy, our souls are anchored within the veil so that where Christ is, we will join him. We will join him. All because he walked out of the tomb. Please stand with me. I want to read a section of scripture to you. And I want you to listen to it in light of what has been said, the promises of the scriptures. We quote it all the time. We've read it multiple times. It's Romans 8, 28 to the end. It is like a victory march. Paul says that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Well, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, I, I know that many people over the last few months have just been hit extremely hard. I know that for me, I just was struggling. And I'm just so thankful for the promise of your word that is tethered Lord, to your character. Lord, I thank you that in just your your kindness that you wanted to give us strong consolation that we would have an unshakable hope that because Christ has risen, our souls are anchored to your presence and nothing because of that can separate us from you. We will endure much on this planet, but it has an expiration date. And when we join you in eternity, where only righteousness dwells, there is no expiration date. So Lord, I pray for my, my brothers and sisters here this morning that Lord, they would be very aware of your presence in their lives and your promise. And that even as they hurt and as they struggle, Lord, they would be able to look forward to all that's real. This is passing away and it will be. And Lord, I pray for anybody that might have come here this morning that is currently outside of your grace. I pray, Lord, that they would understand that, Lord Jesus, you bore their sins at Calvary, all of their guilt, and that you did indeed rise from the grave in victory. Lord, help them to trust you that they might be saved and receive the hope that we have. Lord, send your spirit to just bring conviction in their lives. Lord, thank you for your kindness, your goodness to us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.